This morning we looked at Genesis 18 and 19, a familiar narrative in many respects, noting in particular how 18, 19, and 20 is framed by that promise and then fulfillment of the birth. And the question that the Lord asks, is anything too hard for the Lord, is the question that drives that narrative forward. We observe that question and we see, of course, nothing is too hard as the Lord determines, so he will cause it to come to pass. But along the way, he eliminates every other possibility. Particularly, that which is unrighteous will not be used by him, but God destroys the wicked. They bear the consequences of their sin. That is the point of the narrative. And then we come many, many, many years later in Israel's history to the book of Judges, and we see, as it were, another series of events that are portrayed in the likeness, very much, of Genesis chapter 19. I've labeled the sermon, Is Anything Too Hard for the Lord? Part 2. It is right for us to think again about that question this evening as we look at this particular text, and we learn not only of the similarities, but the differences and their significance, understanding certainly again that God will cause the wicked to face his judgment. But more than that, there is salvation and redemption available in the gospel of Christ. This is one of the darkest periods in all of Israel's history. This is one of the hardest chapters in all of the Bible to read. And yet... The events portrayed in here are not beyond the redeeming grace of the gospel. And so as we think through these events this evening, I want to labor how it is that the gospel responds to such sin. Now you'll know something of the book of Judges. It is a desperate time that has been brought really upon the people of Israel by themselves by their own disobedience. It's important to understand when you read the book of Judges and see just how terrible things were in the land at that time, it is their own doing. And the reason I say that is because prior to Judges is the book of Joshua, and in Joshua they had a very clear mandate from the Lord to go into the land, take possession of it, and to rid the land of anyone that was not an Israelite. Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and on and on the list goes. And God is very plain with Joshua. You are to rid the land of these people. God's desire is that his people would occupy the land and they would be a people unto him, living their lives in obedience to him. And thus that necessitated that all of the other tribes were left, were, were banished from the land. If you read the book of Joshua, you see partial, measured obedience. And you see a lot of disobedience. The conquest was not complete, at least not completed by the people. They did not fulfill their responsibility, and they left many of the foreigners in the land. And that's an ominous note in the book of Joshua. We don't see the fruits of their disobedience there and then, 
But as you keep reading through redemptive history, you get to the book of Judges, and now you understand the outworking of their disobedience. These other tribes are numerous, and they don't like much living with the Israelites. So frequently, the other tribes seek to oppress God's people, and God, in his wisdom, allows them to. God punishes his people for their disobedience. So the book of Judges is one cycle after another, one judge being raised up after another in response to the people's crying out for help because they're being oppressed by a foreign people who are only there because the Israelites didn't obey in the book of Joshua to rid them from the land. They've caused this situation themselves. And as you keep reading through the book of Judges and you chart the downward spiral of both the people and even of the judges, who themselves as leaders get worse and worse and worse, what you see is that by the end of the book, the people have become, in essence, Canaanites. They begin the book as God's people. The Canaanites are in the land and they ought not to be. By the end of the book, God's people are now behaving no better than the Canaanites. Now, at the very end of the book, we get a number of narratives that break from the cycle of the judges that give us, as it were, a a bird's eye view of what was going on in the land. And one of those narratives we read here in Judges chapter 19 begins with that well-known phrase, there was no king in Israel. It's here in the last few chapters of Judges that we read many times over, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But in Judges 19 verse 1, we're introduced to a certain Levite. The fact that the Levite remains nameless, the fact that the people in this narrative are nameless is intentional to try to impress upon us This could have been anyone. This could have happened at any period in the time of the judges. This is the kind of depravity that was commonplace in the land at that time. This Levite is wandering around. He takes for himself a concubine. And then the very first thing we read of their marriage is that she was unfaithful to him. You see how readily we're told he takes a concubine and then immediately in verse 2, and she was unfaithful. It is indicative, representative of the moral failure that was prevalent in the land at that time. The Levite pursues her. He goes to her father's house where she is now staying. And it seems like there is some kind of reconciliation. Seems that she's willing to be back with him, and her father is overjoyed at this. He hosts his son-in-law, and he keeps hosting his son-in-law, and he keeps hosting them, and he doesn't want to let them go. There is this almost comical level of hospitality expressed on the part of the father. We can only presume because he is so thrilled that the family, his daughter and his son-in-law, are now back together. But much the same as we saw this morning, this over-exuberant expression of hospitality is carefully used by the narrator to prepare us for what comes next. 
it sits within sharp contrast to what happens in Gibeah. And there is so many expressions of subtle irony along the way. Consider if the father-in-law who was rejoicing in this union coming back together, if he had just let them go in the morning, if he had just let them leave the house in the morning, if he hadn't kept insisting that they would stay and stay and stay and prolong their journey, consider the fact that the servant says, let us dwell this evening with the Jebusites. Here we are, let's dwell in this city with foreigners. If only they had dwelt there, who knows what could have come of this relationship, what might not have come to pass. But the Levite says, let's not stay in a land, a city of foreigners. Let's go on to our own people. And so they end up spending the night in Gibeah, initially in the open square. There is, again, another anonymous man who acts in their favor, who comes out and he says to them, don't spend the night in the square. It's important to recognize Gibeah would have been a walled city. And so the man pleading with them, don't spend the night here, is not fearful of outsiders. He is not fearful of other people coming in. He knows there are problems in this city. Don't spend the night in the square. So he brings them in. And then, as they're making their hearts merry, there is a knock at the door. And the men of Gibeah are insistent, let us know this man. And he refuses, the host refuses, but offers these two women. They refuse, and so now the Levite himself takes his concubine and pushes her outside the house, leading to one of the darkest nights in all of Israel's history. The woman is found in the morning, so graphically told, with her hands on the threshold of the door. It is representative of that, that line of security, of safety. If she could just get across the threshold, she would be safe. And yet all she could do is put her hands there. And her master comes out and instructs her, get up. There's no answer. So he picks her up and throws her on the donkey and they go home. And then in his house, he takes a knife and cuts her up. Notice the narrative intentionally never makes mention of the point at which she dies. Intentionally, it leaves open the possibility that in the morning she was still alive. The man picks her up and makes sure of her death in his house by cutting her up and sending the pieces throughout Israel. It is one of the darkest chapters in all of Scripture. But it is Scripture. It is God's inerrant word. And it is there in some way for our consideration, for our instruction. Now, as I read the narrative this evening... I'm confident that you were reminded of Genesis 19. 
I'm confident that you were reminded of that chapter because Judges 19 is intentionally portrayed in the likeness of Genesis 19. There are some 70 words that are exactly the same in the two narratives. They are presented in the same order. The progression of action within the two chapters is identical. There are many phrases that are the same and shared between the two chapters. So as you meditate upon this dark moment in Israel's history, one thing you come to see is that the narrator of Judges is intentionally recounting this story in the likeness of Genesis 19. He wants for his readers to be thinking upon what happened to Sodom as we read what happened in Gibeah. And I said to you this morning, this is often how Old Testament narrative works. It is very repetitious in its nature, in its character. It construes its meaning by appealing to previous episodes. As you see repetitions within Old Testament narrative, you are supposed to line up the repeated elements, as it were, and to compare and contrast. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And you'll see many similarities, but what is so significant is wherein there are differences. Where there are differences, often that is where the meaning, the point of the text emerges. So having noted that Judges 19 is given to us in the likeness of Genesis 19, what are the differences? Well, in Judges 19, there are no angels that come to visit the house. In Judges 19, the assailants, the men, are not struck with blindness. Rather, they get the object of their pursuits. In Judges 19, the city is not destroyed by fire from heaven. In a symbolic act, the man destroys his concubine. In Judges 19, or more to the point in the narrative that follows, there is a form of destruction, but it is self-inflicted as the nation enters into civil war, attempting to eliminate the tribe of Benjamin. And so we might gather those differences together and summarize the point simply as this. Judges 19 is a Sodom narrative take two without divine intervention. That's the point. Judges 19 is a Sodom narrative take two without divine intervention. You look back now on Genesis 19 and you marvel at God's intervening work that he would strike those men blind, that he would destroy that city, 
that he would allow Lot to escape. You see God's intervention throughout that wicked narrative. When you move to Judges 19, he is gone. He is no longer intervening. He's not holding back sin. He's not judging, at least not immediately there and then in the moment. There are no fingerprints of God in this narrative. He has truly handed them over to their sin. This is in narrative form what we read in Romans chapter 1 that God gave them over. He gave them over to their lusts and to their desires and he is allowing their sin to have its full effect. This is sin unrestrained. God does not intervene. And we see therefore why it is one of the darkest chapters in all of Scripture. Because God is not to be found anywhere. This is truly understood a picture of a godless society. So how did we get there? When you observe that correspondence and specifically the difference, the question we then need to answer is how did we get from Genesis 19 to Judges 19? Two narratives that are so similar and yet so fundamentally different because in one we see the Lord acting, in the other he's entirely absent. How does such a godless society come to pass? There is lots to say. It's a long story from Genesis to Judges. But we can make just a few observations from this narrative to make a few suggestions as to how such a godless society comes to be. Noting again, as we did this morning, that it all begins with the rejection of authority. As I said this morning, when you reject the notion of an overarching authority, you can define your morality however you choose. Lot protested to the men of Sodom. They rejected him asserting himself over them with a standard in order that they could pursue the path of their choosing. Exactly the same in the book of Judges. Undoubtedly, God is gracious throughout the book to raise up these judges for a time period. They were limited in their geographical scope. They weren't presiding over the whole nation. Each judge is isolated to an area. They're limited in the time in which they reign, and more to the point, they are flawed in character. The judges get worse and worse and worse as the book goes on, and hence that is why we read, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was righteous in their own eyes. We're supposed to connect those two statements together. There was no king in Israel, it is exactly because there is no righteous authority in this land that everyone can do what is right in his own eyes. When you remove the notion of authority, you can define your morality however you choose. And it is the same in our society today. With the onset, the advancement of secularism, there is very little appeal to the existence of God, far less God as a righteous judge who demands us to live in accordance with his law. There is in particular of late, there is in particular of late a renewed sense of 
rejecting all hierarchical structures. It is an ideology that is toxic. And we've seen it come to pass in very, very recent times, the rejection of any hierarchical structure, the teaching that any manifestation of authority is evil. It's one of the most dangerous lies you could ever choose to believe. Authority is a God-given concept that is there for our good. It starts in the home and it continues all the way through our lives. Authorities are the means by which we learn how to live. When you reject authority, you can pursue whatever is in your heart, and it leads to a godless society. Coupled with that is the rejection of institutions. What do I mean by that? Consider the fact that this story began with a wandering Levite. There should never, ever have been such a thing in Israel as a wandering Levite. God gave an institution to this country, namely the sacrificial system, the system by which they were to worship him. And that institution came with it constraints, restraining imperatives, not least that the Levites were supposed to be at the tabernacle. They had a place of duty. They had a post to attend to. He was meant to be there. And the narrative is so ominous when we read in verse 1, a Levite was sojourning. He ought not to be sojourning. He's rejecting the constraints that have been placed upon him by God. Good and godly institutions which are given to us to hem us in. To keep us back from wandering, not only physically, but in our hearts and in our desires and in our pursuits. It is not simply the notion of authority, but so also with that, institutions. Within Gibeah, there would have been, before the time of the judges, some acknowledged and agreed upon legal system by which the city would operate. And men would have understood this is for our good. It doesn't align necessarily with the sinful inclinations of the flesh, but it's put upon us for our good. It restrains us and it hems us in. And then one night the men come knocking at the door, having seemingly thrown out any notion of a legal code by which they were to live. Again, the parallels with today are so evident the most basic institution in all of society is the family. And the efforts to undermine the family are significant. Thinking back to this morning's message, LGBTQ, none of those letters affirm the biblical picture of the family. They all undermine it. The ideologies that are so prevalent and so celebrated in society today undermine the restraining influence that comes about in the home. You go on from there, people leave the home and they would ordinarily, traditionally submit themselves then to various other institutions. Oftentimes enrolling in a college or university and understanding as you enter into that institution, I am not who I want to be. 
I am not who I ought to be, but I am here so as to be shaped and conformed by the institution. And that is for the history of the Western tradition, the role that institutions have played to shape and to mold those that come in and submit willingly to their restraining influence. And today, the notion of the institution has been entirely flipped on its head so that now young people enter in looking for a a platform to perform. Not to be conformed, but so as to perform. Where's the nearest microphone? How can I get the biggest following? Let me speak. Ignoring the fact that they really have nothing to say. There are indeed fake institutions that parade as if they will give young people a sense of belonging. The barrier to entry is at absolute zero. If you're able to type your name and come up with a password, you can enter this institution. There is no peer review, no restraint placed upon them. They are immediately encouraged to start projecting, to start performing. And so the notion of restraining institutions has been entirely lost, and it is to our detriment. They are God-given for our good. And then thirdly, we might observe the rejection of any understanding of societal responsibility. Any societal responsibility The idea of it has been rejected in Gibeah. The one man who pleads with them not to spend the night is the only figure in this narrative who exercises responsibility for another. He cares for their well-being and he says, come in and and spend the night with me. The The men that come knocking on the house certainly do not. No questions about the union between the man and the woman. They simply make a demand of the man. Even the Levite, in his pushing his concubine outside of the house, is neglecting his responsibility towards another. And so it is also with us today. No sense of responsibility towards one another We live in such an individualistic age and we affirm the idea that we're responsible really for me, myself and I and other people need to take care of themselves. I was with the new members just yesterday speaking about what it means for them to come into membership at this church. There's a lot to say, but one of the things I stressed is you need to come to church on a Sunday looking around you and telling yourself, I have a responsibility for these people. That's what it means when you come into membership here. You are accepting, amongst other things, you are accepting that you are now bearing responsibility for the spiritual health of the other members in this church. And that is a notion that is entirely lost in Gibeah, in society today, and that is part of what leads us to such a dark episode in Israel's history. So how then does the gospel respond to this chapter of Scripture? 
If I was to ask you to articulate the gospel tonight, I'm sure I would hear wonderful testimonies of how God has worked in your life. And perhaps central to those testimonies would be the truth that by trusting in Christ, your sins have been forgiven. And that is wonderful, and it certainly is part of the theology of the gospel. My encouragement to you is to understand that it is so much richer even than the forgiveness of your sins. That is the starting point of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross so that sins would be forgiven. As you confess them, as you readily acknowledge them before the Lord, as you acknowledge you have nowhere to go, you cannot earn his acceptance through your efforts. But you willingly accept the perfect life and the sacrificial death and the triumphant resurrection of Christ. Your sins are forgiven. And there is more to say. You can spend your whole life meditating on the gospel and never exhaust its riches. I wonder if you believe that. You can spend your whole life meditating on the riches of the gospel and never, ever exhaust it. And the gospel responds even to chapters as dark as Judges 19. So this morning, when I said that my care, my concern for us as a church is that we would accept the responsibility that comes with living in the age in which we find ourselves... What I meant is not only that we would have an answer to the problems that exist in society, but we would have a robust gospel with which to respond. It is not simply an answer to the question of why God destroyed Sodom, though that is so important in the times we live, but also to then have the antidote to the problem to respond to the depravity of society, the darkness of chapters like Judges 19 with a robust gospel. And that would include the notion of authority. If part of the problem is the rejection of authority, you have to understand that the gospel brings with it the idea, the notion, the concept of authority. As you put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, so you also readily affirm him to be the Lord of your life. That is part of the gospel message. You don't accept Christ as a savior and, and drink all of the glorious benefits without at the same time accepting that now you are a slave unto him. You are now submitting to him. Your life is not your own, but it belongs fully to him. And whatever he demands of you, you will readily obey by God's grace because he is your authority. You see, there is coming a day very, very soon when Christ will appear and every eye will see him. It will not be a limited appearance. Every eye will see him and in that moment, every heart will believe upon him. Every tongue will confess, not to say in that moment every single person will be saved, but everyone will come to the realization of the truth that so many have spent their life rejecting, that he is indeed king. 
And in that moment, so many will be so desperately terrified because of their rejection of him during their earthly life. It is not to say in that moment everyone will enter into the domain of salvation, but they will come to a clarifying realization of who Christ is. And for those who have rejected him, that will then mean they are judged. But for those who have spent their life living under his authority, accepting the grace of the cross, the forgiveness that comes from the cross, and joyfully picking up their cross so as to follow after Christ daily, for those, oh, what a joyful day it will be when Christ appears. There will be a celebratory rejoicing as Christ shows himself to all that he is indeed the king and we will sing once again of his authority over us. The authority that Christ brings as part of his gospel is an authority that is to be acknowledged not individually but corporately. Again, this societal breakdown that was so evident in Gibeah that night is addressed by the corporate nature of the gospel. And by that, what I mean is God is saving one person at a time. The second he saves you, he brings you into his people. He doesn't leave you as an island. He never intends that you would live out your life in obedience to him in isolation from other Christians. You never thought there was a connection between Judges 19 and the letter to the Ephesians. Well, there is. We see in Judges 19 the negative reality that Paul champions so positively in the letter to the Ephesians, namely that you've been brought into the body of Christ. And that is where you are to live your lives. We are supposed to be obeying Christ together. As you read through your Bible and you see one imperative after another that you know rests on your shoulders as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the question you should be asking is not even so much how do I obey this, but how do we obey this? How do I help my brothers and sisters in Christ obey this command? How might they better help me? Because our obedience is to be played out together. That is to say, as Christ saves us, he is forming a righteous community. And that community, in stark contrast to the city of Gibeah, that community is called the church. That is how the gospel responds to the absence of authority in Judges 19. Now with that, it also responds to their rejection of institutions. Having mentioned the church, that then, that then leads us on to what it should look like for us to be obeying corporately, living our lives together in the local church. And the answer is we don't push back on the restraining influences that are given for our good. Again, thinking back to the time with the new members yesterday, what do you need to be a member in this church? You need a credible testimony of salvation. We need to ensure that you are a Christian as best we can discern. And 
You need to show us that you're willing to submit to the leadership of the elders. It's really that simple. To come into membership, you have to be a Christian. And you have to tell us that you're ready and willing to submit to the leadership of the elders. Because that's God's plan for the church as given in the New Testament. Without that, it would be utter chaos. There are restraining influences placed upon you according to God's wisdom that are good for you. And you honor those restraining influences through your submission. It doesn't just apply to the way in which we do church, but in all of life. Very soon we'll be in Ephesians 5. You think about the the imperatives there for the marital union. You don't get to be the wife who says, I'm a Christian. And at the same time, not submitting to your husband. That doesn't work because there's a restraining influence that comes to you through Ephesians 5 telling you, in so much as you are a wife, so you submit to your husband. That's a God-given restraint on your life. You don't get to be a husband who says, on the one hand, I'm a follower of Christ, and on the other hand, you are not sacrificially laying down your life every day for your spouse. You don't get to be that husband because there is a restraining influence placed on your life for your good that is there to conform you to the image of Christ. And what does it look like? It looks like you give of yourself for the benefit of your spouse. So you don't resist that. We can play that out a hundred times. The point is God is restraining you through his word, through the ministry of the local church, for your good. And as you submit to those restraining influences, then the absence, the rejection of institutions is addressed by the gospel. And then finally, the rejection of societal responsibility is met with the gospel as you understand exactly what is your role in this place. As I've already said this evening, you don't come here simply to consume. You have to fight against the consumer mentality in church. We're trained to think that way outside of the church. But it's not biblical. You come to church not to consume, but to serve, and specifically to serve one another. You are here certainly to be fed and to be built up. You're here certainly to be ministered to, which is different from consuming. You're not here to be entertained. You're here to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. You have to take responsibility for one another. And so, as I often answer the question to people, in what ways might you serve in the church? The answer to that question, in part, is we have many opportunities within many ministries, and I can show you a very long list. Pay attention to my emails that go out Monday, Friday, and see every single time there's an opportunity for you to serve, and we're asking you to do so. That's part of the answer. But know this, as you spend your life in this church, as you give of yourself to others, needs will show up before your very eyes. 
which is not being advertised in any bulletin. No announcement is being made. You are simply spending your time with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are needy, broken sinners. And as those needs show themselves and present themselves before you, it is your responsibility then to do whatever you can to meet that need, to minister to that need. And if you are out of your depths and you can't, you don't ignore it. You grab another brother or another sister and you say, there is a need, would you help me minister to this person? That is what it means to serve in the local church. There should be expressions of service a hundred times over being played out every single week. Again, not formal, not having been articulated in some kind of communication, but simply that which God has shown you because you are living your lives together and then you take responsibility for it. That is what it means to be a church member. And when that becomes the culture in a church, you see then how the gospel responds to the rejection of societal responsibility. The gospel is so robust in its theology, beginning with your faith in Christ and sins forgiven. And thereafter, you keep opening up the theology of the gospel and you see how rich it is, how wonderful a plan God has given so as to address every manifestation of sin that we could ever conceive of. Even the darkest chapter in all of Scripture, the gospel responds. And our responsibility is to immerse ourselves in this gospel. Consider again verse 30 of this chapter. We are told, consider it, take counsel and speak. Why did I choose to preach this text tonight? Not least because we are told in God's word to consider it. Consider this episode and meditate upon the gospel that provides the only solution to such depravity. Take counsel. Take counsel from the gospel. Allow the manifold riches of the gospel to instruct your heart and your life, especially where you are lacking. As I said just a few weeks ago, you are to submit to the teaching of God's Word and you are to go home and meditate upon the Word that has been preached and think particularly, how am I to respond? Think about wherein you are lacking to evidence the Gospel in your lives. Is it through a reluctance to submit to the authority of Christ in some area Is it too the reluctance to allow the institution that is the church to restrain you in some particular way? Is it a failure to exercise that responsibility that you have towards your other brothers and sisters in Christ? However it may be, pray that God would show it to you and take counsel. May he give you grace to respond this evening. And then finally, you speak. God's word instructs us to speak out of this chapter of Scripture. As I've said to you many times, you can have an enormous ministry of encouragement by simply speaking the truth 
of the gospel to one another. You speak the truth of the gospel to those who know Christ and see how encouraged they are. Speak the manifold riches of the gospel to one another. And then may the Lord give us boldness to speak those same truths to those who don't know him. To those, again, who are not necessarily caught up in any sin that comes anywhere close to Judges 19 and yet face the same judgment that God brings on all of the wicked. May God give us the courage to speak those truths outside of the church. And by his grace, may we see sinners redeemed unto newness of life one that celebrates the gospel until Christ returns. Pray with me now to close. Father, we do thank you for our time this evening in your word. We do consider and take counsel from it. We consider just how dark sin can be. We consider the many ways in which a society can be utterly godless. We see your absence in this text, no divine intervention. And it is sobering for us to consider. We delight to think upon the riches of the gospel this evening. Certainly a forgiveness of sins. But so much more to say. Christ as a Savior is also an authority. Christ ushers his people into the church. He places upon us restraining influences that are there for our good. And he commends us to take responsibility for one another. Father, we praise you for the gospel this evening. Would you lead us in a diligent and a constant meditation upon the gospel. I pray that as we go from here, we would be found faithful to simply set our hearts upon the riches of your plan of redemption. And as we do so, that you would show us yet more and more how wonderful that plan is. Instruct our hearts with that plan. Father, where we are failing, would you instruct our hearts? Give us the grace to correct. I pray that we truly would submit to Christ as our authority, that we really would submit to all of the restraints that you have placed on us and that we would take ownership of our membership here, that we would exercise our responsibility towards one another. I pray that that would be part of the culture of this church. Father, and as we live our lives in this way, may we also speak of the gospel. May the gospel be on our lips always as an encouragement to one another and as the only message of hope for sinners. 
May we speak the gospel to those who don't know you. And would you save them? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.